Our study this morning is in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29. Let's take our Bibles and turn there. You know, as I said earlier during communion, the start of a new year is, is kind of a time to reassess. And it's a time to set some goals and, and evaluate where we are and what we uh, would love to see change. And, um, you know, we've seen with, with things like resolutions, many of those die on the vine by the end of the month. But there's something about a fresh calendar with a new date on it that gets us excited and, and causes us to think big and imagine the possibilities of, of what uh, might happen and how our lives can be better. And we talk about things like losing weight and exercising and, and spending more time with our family and doing things to, to mature spiritually. We kind of get a quote-unquote a vision of what we would like our life to be that it wasn't this year, but we haven't gotten there yet. For instance, my vision for my life is that I'd be 6'2", 175, good-looking and run marathons. So obviously my vision is on Mars right now, but we have to start somewhere, right? Cut back a little bit on the candy and, and the chips and all that kind of stuff. You have to have a, a, an idea of what the Lord or what you would like your life to be like. Churches also tend to focus on vision. In fact, probably too much. One of the primary points of focus of books and conferences and, and kind of the, the internet blogs and the writings about churches as I read from pastors is this concept of vision. And in some ways, pastors can spend more time trying to develop a vision for their church than they do studying the Word of God or they do ministering to people because it becomes this buzzword that we talk about. We've got to have a, we've got to have a vision. We've got to have a, a plan. And unfortunately in that, much of the emphasis then becomes on, on kind of a man-created, man-centered plan that takes its clues more from business and marketing than it does from prayer and the Holy Spirit. And I have to believe that the Lord would be far more pleased to see His people cry out in dependence on Him and ask Him for His leading than He would in clever strategizing and trying to figure out what we can do to, to manage and market so that people will be interested. Because the gospel is interesting on its own. It doesn't need our help. Now, the concept of vision is very biblical, though. In fact, the 71 times it's used in the Bible, there's only one time when it doesn't refer to an actual physical dream or, or some kind of visual insight that somebody was given where an angel appeared or the Lord spoke to somebody or where there was a ladder going to heaven. There, there are 70 times in the Bible where somebody had some kind of vision. And the Lord used that to communicate directly to people and often to give them uh, some kind of confirmation of His Word, to let them know that what was happening was actually real, that this was from Him, that this wasn't some deception of the enemy, but, but God was communicating directly to his people. And he wanted that to build their faith and to encourage them to, to follow him. And sometimes those visions were wonderful. Other times, like in da uh, Daniel 10, they were, they were depressing and, and kind of discouraging and brought anguish. Now, 71 times the Bible talks about a vision. 70 of the times, it's an actual physical insight. The one exception to it is Proverbs 29.18. And Proverbs 29.18 is often quoted uh, as a justification of the businessing of the church. It's often misquoted, actually, 
uh, in terms of, of trying to say, well, this has got to be our priority. The verse says, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. The word actually means to be let loose or unguided. So where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps God's law. Now, the second part of the verse is not usually quoted very much. But the first part is used uh, with great emphasis. The problem is that when you use that word vision out of that verse, it's not talking about a business strategy. It's not talking about marketing. It's not talking about developing a plan. The word there in Proverbs 29.18 actually means a divine communication. So applying that to, to strategy is kind of tenuous at best. This is why we don't use the word vision a lot at Harbor Rock. It's not that we're not planning. It's not that we're not thinking. We'll talk about that in a second. It's not that we, we are flying by the seat of our pants and, and just trying to figure it out. It is to say that this is the Lord's church. This is not our church. It's not Paul Rhodes' church. It's not Congregation's church. This is the Lord's church. He's the one that created it. He's the one that founded it. And he's the one that leads it. And our job is to follow that. Our job is to discern from his word and to discern from his spirit what he desires for us and then to be completely aligned with that. Now, we're not saying that to be cute. We're not saying that to be arrogant like, well, look at us. We're kind of nonconformists and we're purists and, and whatever. It, it's just the conviction of, of us that, that this church be very simple in its approach like the church was in Acts. Now, someone might look at the brochure that you got this morning, if you have that, take that out, and they might say, well, that's contradiction because it says on here strategic priorities, and, and you're talking about strategic planning when you just said we just want to be simple and follow the Holy Spirit. The answer to that is this comes out of a lot of time of seeking the Lord and getting a very clear sense of his leading in some of these areas. So I want to just take 30 seconds to one minute to look at this because these are things that, as leadership, we feel are, are real priorities. This is a year where the gospel needs to be known more in this community. How many think that needs to happen? This city, this area, southeast Wisconsin, even going down into northern Illinois, needs the gospel. It needs Jesus Christ. And we have not been effective enough. We, as Christian churches, evangelical churches, We've not been effective enough in taking the gospel to people. So some of the priorities that we have, one of the biggest one is greater outreach. We really need to do a better job of getting into our community and ministering to them, showing the love of Christ, and taking the gospel to them. Once they come, once they visit, we want to make sure that it's easier for them. Some of you may be visiting this morning. We're glad you're here. We want to do a better job of helping you to feel welcome and integrating you into the body. I, I saw a statistic about a month ago that says a church our size averages 520 visitors a year. That's remarkable. That's twice the size of our church. So what are we doing to, to help those people know the love of Christ, to give them a place of community within the body, and, and to disciple them and encourage them? So that's a priority. We're going to have stronger fellowship in the body. Randy talked about that with HRT Connect. We want to connect you more. We want to have more opportunities for us to get together as a body. Prayer is going to be a priority. 
especially as we search for a building. And we're going to be more aggressive about that. Lord, what do you want? We've got our eyes on a couple things. Then we're going to look at things like the Sunday service. Do we need to have a different time for it? It's 9 o'clock. It's kind of early. Do we want to go later? Do we want to have Sunday morning discipleship classes where you can connect as a community and be encouraged? And then we want to continue to strengthen our ministries, be more specific about what they're doing, as Brad and Tom talked about, be more uh, open about who's coordinating them and how you can get involved. And part of that will be better communication. So these are the steps we believe the Lord has led us to, to, to move forward in our third year and, and to be more effective as a church for him. So let me try to capsulize that down into two points. One is that we need to take the gospel to the world verbally and practically. Every day it needs to emanate from us who we love and who we serve. And we need to show people the love and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. The time is short. I want to say that again and again and again. The time is short. There needs to be an urgency to our ministry. The Lord is coming soon. I'm telling you, the Lord is coming soon. We need to be urgent about what we're doing, and we've got to think outside ourselves. It's not just about us. It's about now how are we serving in our community. And then once people get saved and start maturing, we need to start to build a greater community and and a closer body. Okay? Now, all that being said, it's important to understand that this brochure, these thoughts, are totally at the will of the Lord. If God wants us to focus on one area or he wants to change what has been written here, that's perfectly fine with us. As it's clear to us what the Lord's doing as he leads us to new ministries or different ministries or expanding what we already have, we're going to follow him. And if he wants us to focus on just one or two, we'll do that. This is not a document in stone, okay? This is just a guide that we feel the Lord has led us to. But we want to make sure that this is not inflexible. In other words, if if the Lord unmistakably wants us to go into a building, and I think that would be helpful, it would give us some permanence, it would hopefully cut some of our costs, then we're going to pray about it. And when we find something, we're going to put it before the congregation. If the congregation feels overwhelmingly that's what we should do, we'll do it. If the congregation does not feel led, then we won't do it. We're not going to act until we're sure. And if God doesn't want us to be in in a permanent building this year, then we're going to continue to serve joyfully and continue to be thankful for what we have, right? It's it's a challenge. Every week we have to set up and and cables get broken. And the the tech team's remarkable, guys. And the setup team's remarkable. You need to thank them over and over. They do an amazing job each week behind the scenes. It's hard. It's not as hard as it could be. We don't ever have to set up a chair. There are churches that have to set up chairs every week and, and all that kind of stuff. So we're just going to serve how the Lord leads us. Now, in this passage, long introduction, I'll try to be brief with the message. In this passage, Jeremiah 29, the Jews would have loved to have a building. They would have loved to have a place to gather and worship the Lord. The problem is not only were they not uh, able to gather, they were in exile and they were in slavery. But instead of repenting, instead of saying, we've done the wrong thing, we've abandoned God, we need to repent, instead of doing that, they lost interest in the Lord. So Jeremiah gets a word from the Lord, and he writes to them. He writes to the exiles, to those that were in Babylon, and he says, here is a message of 
correction and warning. And here's a message of encouragement and hope. Now this is about 600 years before Christ. And as we'll read in a moment, King Jeconiah was the second to last king of the nation of Judah. Remember after Solomon, the kingdom split into two. Ten tribes in the north called Israel. Two tribes in the south called Judah. Judah had Jerusalem in it. So Judah had a number of kings. Every king that ruled over Israel was evil. Judah had about 20 kings, only about six of which were, had any goodness in them and any desire for the Lord and any desire for spiritual reform. And one of them, Uzziah, went off track. So we've got a very poor history after the kingdom divides, after Solomon allowed false gods to come into his life. Kingdom divides, we probably have 35 kings, only about six of them have any redeeming value to them. The second to last king of Judah was a man named Jeconiah. And these southern two tribes have been taken into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar has come in and conquered Jerusalem, and he's taken the people away. So as we read this, I want you to get a sense of real isolation. Jeremiah has remained, and he basically, if we can kind of picture this in our mind, he's basically standing alone in Jerusalem. There's nobody left. The city has been besieged. It's been broken down. It's desolate. The wind is whipping through the desert mountains. And Jeremiah basically is left in Jerusalem all by himself, getting a word from the Lord and writing it to the exiles. Everything about Jerusalem at this point is an empty shell of itself spiritually and physically. That had been that way spiritually for a long time because Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He wept because he kept getting word from the Lord and kept warning the people, judgment's coming, difficulty's coming because of your sin. And, and the people just continued to ignore him and ignore him. And then Jeremiah said, judgment's coming, we're going to be conquered. And the people said, ah, uh, be quiet, Jeremiah. You, you're, we're tired of your complaining and we're tired of you challenging us. And at some point then, Nebuchadnezzar came in. And Jeremiah is left alone. God says, I want you to write to the people that are gone, to the exiles and to the leaders and to the priests and to anybody who will listen. Maybe now that this has happened, they'll finally hear me. So Jeremiah, write down the word that I give to you. Hopefully they're going to see how much they've strayed. Hopefully you're going to see how much they've forgotten about me. And here are the words that he writes, Jeremiah chapter 29 Verse 1, we'll just read to verse 14. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent to the hand of Sorry, the letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, 
that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. and Do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you and you'll seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declared the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now, Jeremiah writes this from Jerusalem, and that's not a coincidental detail. That's not uh, something the Holy Spirit just threw in there for fun. He wants to point us to something because Jerusalem has always represented God's presence. And it serves as a spiritual metaphor for the spiritual condition of Israel. It's always been a key location because it was and is and will be the center of the world. And it is declared by the Lord to be holy. So as Jerusalem goes, so go the Jews. As you watch the news, as you look at what's going on in the Middle East and all these Arab nations that surround Israel, and Iran talking about destroying Israel, I want you to pay attention to that. The key to that is Jerusalem. As Jerusalem goes, so go the Jews. As they defend it, they're closer to the Lord. As they yield it, they are disobeying the Lord. Jerusalem is vital because it's where Abraham started to sacrifice Isaac. It's where David ruled. It's where Jesus lived and wept over the lostness of people. And then it's where he died and rose again to save us from that lostness. It's where he will return to rule. Jerusalem is sacred. Which is why the statement this week by one of the advisors to the Egyptian president Morsi was so pivotal. He said, Israel will be eliminated in 10 years. Now, that shows the agenda of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and also shows the authority and the protection and the plans of God as detailed in Revelation because he says, you're not messing with my city. Man can make his plans, but God still controls everything. God controls the nations of the world, and they only do and say what he allows them, and and he uh, allows them to do in terms of discipline and blessing and preparation. God controls the nations. Right now, he is allowing chaos. He's allowing chaos because he's drawing people back to himself. The prevailing attitude of the world right now is forget it, which is why our job is so important that we take the gospel into the world so people will be drawn to the gospel that God is still giving us until his patience runs out and he says enough's enough. That's why when you look at verse 4, It's important to understand, the Lord says to Judah, he says, I sent you into exile. I did this. He's not shirking away from it. He's not hiding it. He says, I'm the one that did this. 
Now, the prevailing question we get from a lot of people is, well, well, why does a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? The first response we always need to ask when that question comes is, are they or are we really good? There's a lot of assumption in why does God allow bad things to happen to good people. You're assuming that the person's good. Israel and Judah at this point have no holiness in them. They have no real interest in the Lord or the things of the Lord. So God sends discipline and he sends trials as a time to cause them to examine their hearts. When God allows difficulty in your life and my life, James 1 says that's the time to look inward and say, all right, where am I spiritually? Not just to say, well, God, that's unfair. You can't do that. Yeah, he can. He's God. He can do anything he wants. But he always has a holy purpose for what he does. So when trials come, we have to say, this is part of the completion process. What do I need now to surrender so that I can be aligned with the Lord? So the first question is, are we really good? The second question is, why might something difficult be happening? For Israel and Judah, it was a direct result of their sin. There's no nuancing, there's no difficulty discerning what the Lord's doing or why it happened. They had stopped listening, they were following false gods, they didn't call on his name, they rejected his word, they didn't listen to the prophets, and even as they were being attacked by Nebuchadnezzar, they didn't ask God for help. They're stubborn, selfish people who don't want the Lord's in the Lord in their lives, so God allows them to go into difficulty, but instead of being honest about their role, and instead of saying, wow, Lord, you've done this, and it's our fault, they continued to blame the Lord. Personal spiritual assessment always needs to be honest. What I find when I counsel people over the years is there's always blame. When I see couples that are going through difficulty, they're always pointing at each other, and they're never pointing at themselves. And a lot of times they say, stop, not another word about the person. You tell me what you've done. No, what have you done? We don't love looking inwardly. We love looking at all the circumstances or our parents or what our spouse did or what our kids are like or what the weather is or the Packers didn't play well. Whatever the case. We've always got some kind of reason why we can't obey. God says, that's not good enough. So if you can't get it, I'll allow difficulty. It's only when we've covered those first two reasons that we can ask ourselves the third question. What's the Lord trying to teach me and mature in me and refine in me? Israel and Judah failed so dramatically in the first two, so the Lord allows them to go into captivity. But here's what we want to see this morning. God wasn't overly punitive. And this wasn't the final thing. He didn't say, that's it, I'm done. You guys have disappointed me one too many times. I am finished. In fact, after verse 4, for the next 10 verses and all of the next chapter, the Lord details his plans for them and how he was going to restore them and bless them. Now, I want you to notice, he says this even before they hear his word. He says this prior to them having any kind of response to his word. Listen, when the enemy tries to stoke fear in you and and tries to fill you with self-pity about your situation or where he tries to convince you, God's not going to forgive that. Nope, you've gone way too far. God, nope, God can't be gracious to that. You just remember this text. God is so incredibly gracious to us 
and we are so undeserving. That is an amazing truth. This table right here is an amazing truth. That God would love us and sacrifice and redeem us. His love and his grace goes beyond our comprehension. Now that doesn't mean he just looks the other way at sin and he just, and he just lets rebellion go. But even in his response to sin and rebellion, we see that he wants us to be returned to a right relationship with him. He doesn't just say, I'm done. And aren't you glad he doesn't? There are so many times in my life where God could have said, I've had it with you. You're doing that sin again? What, what are we up to, Rhodes? 10, 11,000 times? How many are we going to go to? I'm sick of it. God never talks like, you know, a frustrated New Yorker. I'm sick of it. Enough already. His grace just continues to be there. And, and as we read this, I hope you got it, verses 5 and 6. It's remarkable. He has sent them into exile. He sent them because of their sin and rebellion. He sent them because they were stubborn and proud, and they rejected him and dis, didn't listen to the prophets. You would think now he's going to say, I sent you there, and now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. Instead, we see... I want you to build houses and have kids and advance as a people. Now, don't decline, Judah. Listen to me now. Don't decline because I have plans for you. And I assure you the discipline of this trial is going to end. I'm working now and I'm going to work later and I'm going to restore you as my people. And you're going to know the power and extent of my mercy and you'll turn back to me. But that hasn't happened yet. This book was written 2,600 years ago. And this still has not fully happened. In fact, the tenuous position that Israel's in this morning is a direct result of not doing what God calls them to do here. They rejected Jesus, even though God had started to bring them back into the land, but there's still discipline coming before they're fully restored. But think about the implications of what the Lord's doing here. 2,600 years at least before Israel sees their restoration realized, God is still saying to them, I'm going to do it. This is not 26 days. No, like just hang on for a month, guys. I'll get you out of captivity and I'll restore you. And you'll be a great nation again and I'll bless you. This is 2,600 years and the clock's still ticking where he says, someday I'm going to bring you back and you're going to turn your hearts back to me and I'm going to bless you in an amazing way. Look at what he tells them in verse 7 to do. He says, I even want you to pray for the welfare of the place where you are. In other words, even in the worst of situations, instead of complaining and being fatalistic, the Lord wants us to be to be calling on his name. He wants us to pray for help and direction, to pray that he'll change hearts and provide us with an opportunity to serve and live for him. Listen, I know a lot of you are discouraged right now about the country. Instead of praying that God will remove people or God will cause some calamity, we need to be praying for the welfare of our nation that we'd have an opportunity to share the gospel because of what's going on. Turn it to the positive. I see a lot of negative. I get it. Turn it to the positive. 
What is God not calling us to do? He doesn't want us to just sit and gripe. He wants us to be active. That's what this brochure is about. We can sit and be frustrated. I'm frustrated. I'm irritated that my taxes went up. And the government will spend it like that. Or we pray for the welfare of our nation. And we pray for righteous people to rise up. And we pray for the church to be strong. And we pray for believers to be bold. And we pray that the church will get back to prayer. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will move. And revival will come in the church. And then revival will come. Isn't that a better prayer than saying, I'm not picking this morning. You know my heart. God says, pray for the welfare of the nation." And then verses 8 and 9 are very key. He says, watch your heart and mind. Don't be swayed now. The enemy is going to send deception even through some of the prophets. And it's going to get easier and harder to discern. So, so guard against being deceived. How important does this make our knowledge and our understanding of God's word? Make that a priority in this new year. Build up some strong reserves of knowledge and conviction. Spend time in the word of God. Spend time in prayer. Become resolute in your heart. Listen, what's going on in the world right now cannot just be excused as politics or a bad trend. This is very serious stuff that's going on. And there is an end game to it. Some of it will be awful and frightening. But for those who know the Lord, it will be joyful to see God's mercy and God's faithfulness be expressed over and over and over again. Are we completely surrendered to him this morning? Are are we confident in his work? The Lord says to Judah, the discipline is going to have a cost, but I'm still faithful. And I'm going to bring you back into the land. In chapter 30, verses 3 and 10, he says, I'm going to restore you. And then we get to verse 11. I've got to hurry. What a great verse verse 11 is. While the context is to Judah and Israel, this incredible promise of God, Jeremiah 29, 11, applies to all his people, to the Jews someday and to all who trust in Christ and love him. And there's some powerful, inspiring truths in this verse. Let's read it again. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Let me give you four quick thoughts here. Four phrases that stand out as we just divide that verse up. The first phrase is what really overwhelmed and humbled me this week. Look at the first few words of verse 11. The Lord of the universe, the God of all things, the creator of all, the only true God. You have the picture? That God thinks about us. And he has plans for us. The phrase in the Hebrew literally means, I know the thoughts that I think about you. Now let's do some of our own thinking here, because this is the first amazing truth that just needs to so much impress our hearts with joy and gratitude. The Lord is so gracious that he not only forgives us and sanctifies us and transforms us and fills us with his Holy Spirit, But he also thinks about us. He has fresh mercy waiting for us every morning when we wake up. And he is preparing plans for us. 
Church, we need to be in awe of that this year. The Lord has a very specific plan for every believer in this room, and he has plans for this church. It may be this, it may not. It's just a piece of paper. But God is preparing plans for us, and by definition, those plans are to help us thrive and be content by his classification, not ours, and to give us complete confidence in his hand of faithfulness. Now, of all the plans and all uh, the things that I need to do on my massive to-do list for 2013, of all the plans, this is the one that I want to fulfill the most. That God would help us to clearly discern his plan and to fully yield to it and then to live in the joy of it. Lord, show us and lead us and bring us contentment. If there's one prayer I'd love to see us pray as a church, it would be that. Show us your will, lead us in your will, and bring joy to us. And we're going to trust the one who saved us, and we're going to trust the one who sanctified us, that he has a great and wonderful plan for you and for me and for our families and for our marriages and for this church. Now that thought is what makes the second phrase so important. Look at it. He says, I know the plans for you, declares the Lord. Now don't think that the Holy Spirit didn't have a purpose for including that. He had just said in verse 9 and verse 10, the Lord is speaking. So, so why does he say again, declares the Lord? That's not coincidental. It's there to give us perspective. This is the second truth. And before we start saying, all right, Lord, Show us your plans. Let's go. Chop, chop. We want to know what it is. We want to know what to do. We want to get right on it. And we want to be happy about it. Before we say that, we need to remember that these are the terms. He is the Lord. It's the highest name for God. It was almost unpronounceable in the Hebrew language until they added a couple little marks that would help people pronounce it. That's how high the name is. He says, he is the Lord, and Lord also means master, and master means owner and possessor. So as our Lord and master, he has every right to exert his authority, but the amazing truth is that his love compels him to be merciful and kind and loving and gracious to us. Now that doesn't negate his authority, and it doesn't mean that he uh, should be treated disrespectfully. In fact, it should cause us to be more holy and less selfish. Because God, who is the God of all, loves us, has plans for us, thinks about us, and he cares for us, and he's guiding us. Why then would we say, well, I want it my way? Just the opposite. We should say, praise the Lord. Lord, lead us. See, there's spiritual posture. This? We all know what this means, right? A little angled, little scowl, arms crossed, like, not on my turf. I'll do it my way. This is, this is always kind of a, ooh. Or there's this. Those of you that have raised kids, when they're about a year and a half, you see this. Right? How many parents have seen that look? Yeah, yeah, that one yesterday. 
But don't you love it when you walk in even as they get older and they go, Why do we lift holy hands? Because we're saying, Lord, to you. To you. We're not going to stand here and be like this. Just lead us. Show us. Guide us. Help us. That's what he's saying here. Truth number three. Since the things of the Lord are always better than the things of man, then by extension... His plans are always far better than ours. Since the ways of God are better than the ways of man, everybody will concede that point, right? Since the ways of God are better than the ways of man, then naturally the plans of God have to be better than the plans of man. How many know that's true from their own experience? How, how good does it go when we follow our own plan? How does that work out for us? Are we really fulfilled? Are we really content? Are we really satisfied? Or do we flounder? Part of the enemy's deception about this is that the plans of man seem good and the wicked seem to thrive. That's why David writes in Psalm 37, listen, don't be jealous of the person who does evil and don't be fearful that they prosper in carrying out their wicked schemes. Jealousy and fear, those are two trustworthy emotions, right? Jealousy and fear. Jealousy that someone has more than us seem to get away with it. Why do they have life so good and I'm struggling and I'm in trial and I've got to depend on the Lord? Why, why is that so? And then the fear that God will look the other way at our lives and somehow kind of rub it in our face that those of us who are standing for Him have such difficulty. We have to be wiser than that. The enemy puts that thought in our head and we have to say, no, you are wrong. You're a liar. Selfishness will never bring me contentment. Materialism will never bring me contentment. And I see you rewarding people, and that appeals to my base desires. But I'm not going to fall for that. I'm going to crave the things of God so much more than anything. And I'm going to ask Him for wisdom and strength and maturation and courage as a child of God. And I'm going to ask Him to make me bold. And I'm going to ask Him to make me have initiative to represent Him faithfully and without shame. Because Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm going to stand for him this year and I'm going to live and talk in such a way that nobody will be able to mistake who my Lord and my Master is. And when that happens, oh, look at 29.11, we're done. He says, I have plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. Just to be clear, the word in the King James, as some of you are hearing that, is the word prosper. Some people have misappropriated that English word to say that this is the evidence of prosperity theology. That God will give us financial and material blessing. That's his will for us as Christians. That if we just have faith and have the right thoughts and send money to the right ministries, that God will give us wealth. The only problem with that is that's not the meaning of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word means completeness and peace and friendship with God. It has nothing to do with materialism and everything to do with our relationship with the Lord. It's a false theology. Do you think God's concerned about whether or not I have a boat? And I don't. Do you think God cares about whether I vacation in Fiji? Love to, but haven't. You think God's sitting in heaven going, I hope Rhodes gets to go to Fiji this year? 
wow, that will, uh, what a blessing that will be to him. Oh, I know the plans I have for you. Not material. I have plans for you to make you complete and to put you at peace and to bring you into close relationship with me. He even tells that to Judah, a rebellious, sinful, wayward, stubborn, spiritually indifferent nation. And he says, oh, you're going to get your expectation because I am going to work. But the plans will only be realized when you completely yield to me. Emptied of self and full of him. Right now, the Lord has plans for you, and he has plans for me, and he has plans for Harbor Rock. And while he is sovereign and can do whatever he wants and answers to no one, those plans are influenced by what he sees in our heart. So what are the plans going to be for your life this year? Chaos, confusion, irritation, frustration, aimlessness? Or is he going to look at your life and at my life and at this church and say they are complete in their faith. They are at peace with me. They are yielded to my plans and they are drawing close to me and the relationship is better than it's ever been. Church, that's his vision for us. That's what he wants. And if he has awesome plans like that for rebellious exiles, imagine how much greater it is for those of us that love him. Let's close our eyes. I don't know what the Lord's saying to you this morning, but I want to encourage you that if you have been wayward and rebellious, we all have been there. I'm like that still. But if this has been the pattern of your life, like the Jews who continued to defy him, that right now you turn your heart to the Lord and you'd say, God, I get it. I've seen it this morning. Your grace is so sufficient and your mercy is undeserved and your love is overwhelming. I yield myself to you. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my rebellion. Today is the day of salvation. Today, right now, the Lord will change your heart. He has been planning for you since the formation of the world. His plans are to draw you close to Him and to help you to understand His mercy in your life. I pray if you want to do that this morning or you're doing it right now or you want to know more that you'd come up and talk to one of us after the service, we'd be glad to work through that with you. For those of us that love the Lord, but... Honestly, the joy is just not there and we're feeling complacent and dull. Oh, understand this morning that God's got plans for us. Those plans are remarkable. How are we going to prepare ourselves to serve? Are we aligning ourselves with the will of God? Are we yielding ourselves to Him? Are we doing our own thing and then coming on Sunday? Plans to bring you peace. Plans to encourage you and strengthen you. Plans 
to draw you close to me. I know the plans I have. I know the thoughts I think to you. Lord, we ask you this morning for help as if you need to give us any more, but we ask you again for help that our hearts would be softened and that pride would be eliminated and that this year as we start 2013, Lord, a year of change, a year where our world is getting darker and darker, we ask you to stir in us a great desire for you and a great love for you that we would recognize the things that you want to do through us and we would serve you faithfully. Lord, work in our midst, we pray, in our hearts, in our marriages, in our families, in our church, in our community, that we would serve you faithfully and stand boldly for you. Lord, we know and are humbled by the fact that you are already working and already planning what you're going to do Now give us the wisdom and discern it to see it and to follow it. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for what you've already done. You are a gracious and merciful God. We thank you for Christ this morning and for our salvation and for our redemption and the cleansing that is ours. We praise you and we exalt you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.